This is episode 37 of the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I'm Carly Cade, and today I'm speaking with Jessica Burkhart. Jessica is the author of the best-selling 20-book Canterwood Crest series with over 1.5 million copies in print in multiple languages. Her other works include the Unicorn Magic series and the standalone YA novel Wild Hearts. She makes her editorial debut with Life Inside My Mind, 31 authors share their personal struggles. I am so excited to bring you this episode. So let's get into the interview. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast, a podcast featuring interviews with equestrian authors who love all things horses and writing about them. In each episode, you'll hear inspirational stories from horse book authors, including writing advice, and marketing tips to help you write your very own horse book. If you're an author, aspire to be an author, or simply love horse books, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Carly Cade, and creative writing makes my spurs jingle. Hi everyone, welcome to the show. Today I am so excited to have Jessica Burkhart with us. Hi Jessica. Hi Carly, I am so excited to be here. Oh, I, this is going to be a fabulous interview, and I just I, I cannot wait to start talking about your books and the excellent adventures you've been on since writing these books. But I always like to start off the interviews with um, talking to fellow horse book authors about how their love affair with horses began. Can you share a little bit about that? Oh, for sure. Mine started really early. I was maybe five years old, and I moved to Central Tennessee. And behind my house, there was a riding stable. And of course, I'm leaving my backyard, walking out and stretching a hand over the fence to try to pet the horses, not realizing it's an electric fence. Oh, no. (laughs) So I am on my butt in three seconds after touching that fence. But it didn't deter me. Um, I kept going out and visiting them and petting them and feeding them. And finally, one of the instructors noticed me so many times that she said, finally, why don't you take lessons and learn how to ride and get to know horses? And that was it. I was hooked. Oh my goodness. What a, what a dream for a little girl to like have a horse property right behind her, you know, and then it mm-hmm. just be able to see them and then be able to go take lessons at that same farm is a dream. And we've all yeah. had the experience where we <laughs> experienced the zap of an electric fence. It does not feel good. It is definitely a, a surprise. <laughs> surprise that's a good way to put it absolutely mm-hmm. it's like a little zip and then you're like ah yes I, I won't do that again right uh, it's so funny that you brought that up and then you know you <laughs> you were the author of the best-selling 20 book canterwood crust book series with over 1 million copies in print before I ask you to tell us a little bit about the books, I, I know that you have a really interesting story about what compelled you to become a writer of horse books. Would you, would you share that with us? Sure. Um, as I said, I started writing really early and horses were my number one passion. Uh, my family did not have a lot of money and I would clean stalls and clean tack and exercise ride and do anything that I needed to do to pay for lessons. And I thought up until I was 12 years old that I would be a breeder, a trainer, somehow involved in horse world, um, maybe going to the Olympics. That was my dream, to be an Olympic equestrian. And 
And I was diagnosed when I was eight with very severe scoliosis or curvature of the spine. I had to wear a hard plastic back brace from about here all the way down to my hips. And it went from a couple hours a day in the brace up to only taking it off when I would shower. Mm. And my spine twisted over a hundred and some degrees to where it was pressing on my heart, pressing on my lungs. I had a regular heartbeat. I had a hard time breathing. And I finally heard from doctors that I would need a spinal fusion. Um, And I said, okay, so when can I start riding again? That was the only thing that I really cared about. And my doctor said, I'm so sorry, but you were off at least for two years. And with the type of surgery you're having, if you would ride again and fall, your rods could snap and you could be paralyzed. Um, So that was it for me. The surgery was so traumatic and so painful. Um, I had two titanium rods and about 30 screws put in my back. Um, My lungs collapsed during the surgery. It was so crazy intense. And yeah, like I said, traumatizing that I felt after that, I could not take the risk again of getting on a horse, something happening and having to go through that surgery all over again. Because after surgery, I spent a year flat on my back recovering. So that was it. And I thought, I don't want to look at horses. I don't want to think about them. I don't want to be around them. I cut off contact with all of my horse friends. And I thought that's it for me. And I need to find something else in life that I enjoy. So I thought of things that I could do while being flat on my back in bed and recovering. And I started homeschooling because I couldn't go to school uh, while I was recovering. And I was reading a lot of magazines and I thought, what if I could write a story? What if I could write something? So I wrote a bunch of really horrible articles and none of them got published until I wrote a piece for Teen Inc. magazine that published work exclusively by students. Mm. And um, that was it. I got my first giant paycheck for five whole dollars (laughs) and I went and bought McDonald's with it. And that was it. I was hooked on writing at that moment. Oh, that is, you know, I, that is so much for any young person to go through, but then to have something with your physical well-being deter you from being able to be around something that you're so passionate about, which is which is horses. I my heart, you know, goes out to you. But there is a bright spot here where you are able to um, overcome, you know, such a mm-hmm. such a difficult situation, and then embrace your love of creative writing, which then enabled you to bring horses back into your life through the the Canterwood Crest series mm-hmm. um, which is which is everyone knows who you are everybody knows about this book series it's like it's like amazing so can you, can you tell us about how you were able to go from not being able to look at horses or want to be around them because because you lost the ability to ride them uh, in order to continue your life but how, how did you come up with this story and, and find a way to let horses back into your life so you could you can share your your creative writing skills with with the world like where did where did this come from how did how did sure. you overcome that to bring horses back into your life well I had my back surgery in November of 2000 and I spent six years not active at all in mm-hmm. the horse community um, but finally it was 
in November, or no, it was October of 2006, that I heard about this contest called NaNoWriMo, or National Novel, you know it, National mm-hmm. Novel Writing Month. <laughs> and the goal of that contest, for people who might not know, is to write a 50,000-word novel in 30 days. And I thought, this could be the next step up for me. I had been freelancing for those past six years, uh, had about 150 articles published in various magazines, and it was great but I wanted to try my hand at something longer. Mm -hmm. So I had about a month until NaNoWriMo started and I thought, what can I write about? I don't know enough really about anything. I don't think I could fill an entire book. And then one night this idea started bugging me and I thought, no way, nope, I am not writing about horses, anything else but that, but it wouldn't go away. Mm -hmm. And when I sat down on November 1st at my laptop, Things just started coming out, and it turned into the story of a 13-year-old girl who left her tiny, small hometown in Connecticut to attend a fancy elite boarding school and compete on their equestrian team. And that story of Sasha Silver was born, and she was doing all of those things with horses that I wished that I could do. And I was riding again, as cliche as it sounds, but I was doing it through Sasha. And it gave me my inspiration, my love, my obsession of horses back. Oh, I that's, just, yeah. <laughs> that's amazing and, and beautiful. And I imagine he- healing for you too, mm-hmm. to be able to let them back in, in your life and experience them as you're telling this, this story, right? For sure. Absolutely. It was, it was painful and it was emotional, but it was, like you said, it was healing. And I found my love again and it just reunited my entire being I think and my passion for horses oh that's so beautiful and then and then what's so incredible about this is like you you mentioned that like the muse showed up and the story wouldn't leave you alone and and then you sat down to try your hand at writing a book uh through NaNoWriMo but it was incredible it ended up winning uh NaNoWriMo um how was that experience for you? What, what opportunities opened up after you actually won the competition? You, you completed a book, which in that time frame, which is amazing. I've tried my hand at NaNoWriMo. I think I've, I've always gotten to around 30,000 words. I've never completed in the month. So that just completing is a amazing uh, achievement, but then you won, you know, so let's talk about that experience of, of winning sure. the contest. Well, winning NaNoWriMo means that you finished a draft of a book and it's likely going to be horrible. Mine was the first draft of take the reins was garbage, but my favorite writing quote is you can't edit a blank page. So I had plenty of pages to edit and make better. So when I finished the contest, I blogged that I've done it. I've written the horse book that I just wish that I could live out. Mm. And a brand new agent in New York happened to be Googling uh, tween horse books. She was actively seeking uh, to build her client list and she stumbled on my blog and I got an email from her and I thought, this is a scam. This does not happen. Right. So I went back on the nano forums and asked some of the published authors, have you heard of this agency? Have you heard of this agent? And they said, actually, yes, she's with one of the top agencies in New York and you want to send her your manuscript. So it was in January of 2007 
that I signed with her as a client. And we spent from January until uh, April revising my crazy, messy draft and making it into something that we hope publishers would want to see. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, so she she took an interest in you because you had won won the competition. Is that is that correct? Uh, she did because she wanted a horse book. She mm. heard that horses were always in in style. They were always popular things for publishers. Mm-hmm. They're evergreen topics, I think, that it's t- it's timeless. Horses are timeless. And she knew that she wanted to put a horse book out. So that's how she thought, oh, the timing of this is is great. Oh, that's amazing. So then you spend time together and you, you work through um, revising the manuscript because uh, you know, there's always this conversation that, you know, get a messy first draft out there. That's the first mm-hmm. step. And then you can, once you, once you got it down, then you can go back and you can improve it. So you work together and then she took your, your manuscript and, and she went to publishers. What, what was that period like? And, you know, were you nervous? Were you excited? Like how, how did it end up going from all this magical stuff that's been happening around you, you know, around the book, but how did it go from the agent to to published uh, sure. book? Well, um, after we spent that time editing it and working on the draft, she decided that, okay, it's ready to go on submission. And she warned me, this process takes months. Mm-hmm. It takes a long time and we might not ever get responses back. And if we do, they're likely to be rejections. I was in my senior year of college at Florida State at the time. So I was busy. I was studying all the time, finishing up finals. Um, and she went on submission with it. And 10 days later, I got the phone call. And I there was crying and screaming and disbelief and shock. And it was her first major sale too. And oh, wow. she said, okay, there's, there's a caveat to this. They do want to publish Take the Reins. But they want to publish it as part of a series of four books. And they want them to publish bi-monthly. And I said, okay, what does that mean exactly? Not really getting it at that time. Yeah. (laughs) And it meant I was going to have to write a new 50,000 word manuscript every three weeks. Oh my goodness. Sub schedule. (laughs) There was zero hesitation though on my part. I said, okay, yes, I want this. I can do this. So we signed the contract and that's how it started. (laughs) That is amazing. Okay, there's like so much to unpack there. Like, sure. well, first of all, I mean, what a magical journey. I mean, it's mm-hmm. in super congratulations. I mean, this is like what you just explained is like uncommon, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's just yes. like the universe aligned and, you know, you kept stepping through and taking on challenges and then this beautiful thing happened for you. And I'm so, so ex- ex- happy that those happened. But uh, Canterwood Crest ended up becoming a 20 book series, you know, very, very yeah. successful book series. So first of all, how on earth, you know, writing a book is not easy. Like how did you, what did you do to just sit down and, and cram and get those books written uh, with school going on in order to fulfill the contract? And then after those first four, how did it continue on to like 20 books? <laughs> Right. Well, I finished up school. That was the first priority to get that done. So Mm -hmm. I graduated and we decided, how are we going to 
do these covers? Will they be graph? Will they be illustrated covers? Will they be photographic? And the team, I was so lucky, they decided they wanted to do photographic covers. Mm. So that meant they had to hire models and bring in horse models too. And they said, we don't know anything about horses. Do you want to come to the photo shoots? And I thought, what kind of dream is this? So I went to New Jersey and I was lucky enough to meet, this is the model for Sasha and her horse Charm. And they shot the first four covers. It was a 16 hour day with a crew of about 80 people. They were planting flowers. They were, oh my gosh, they bought so much tack with them. And it was just amazing. But I got to meet the faces of Mm. the models who would be my characters. And that gave me so much inspiration and so much push and so much drive Mm -hmm. that I went back home and immediately got into the second book. And once the second book was another really rough draft, the first book went into copy edits. So I was doing copy edits for the first book and finishing up the second. And it was just a process. And Mm -hmm. I thought, I'm only doing this for four books. I can keep up this pace. It'll just be four. It'll be fine. (laughs) And when I got to book four, my agent came back to me and said, so they're doing well. They've sold to Scholastic. We had had the film rights optioned and, you know, it very rarely works out, but just having that option was huge. Mm-hmm. And she said, Simon and Schuster wants four more. What do you think? And I said, okay, let's do it. So we repeated that process all over again, back to the photo shoots, back to copy edits, back to writing. And that process repeated four books at a time, all the way up to 20 books. Wow, that is so incredible. Well, and, yeah. and to be able to be on the photo shoot and be be a part of of that for an author is very, very special. Um, and then it sounds like they worked very closely with you and, and had had you involved in, in a lot of the processes, which is also kind of rare. It um, is, absolutely. Yeah, which is so neat. And then so that's a tight timeline. That's, you know, that's a big commitment that you have to meet. So how did you go from book one to book two and come up with the vision of your story? Did the muse just pop up, which I love when that happens. So the muse just pop up and say, this is where things are going. Or did you have to like sit down and think about it, outline it, and then stick to a regimented writing routine in order to to meet those deadlines? Like how did your, your writing ritual look? Sure. It was, very intense and very outline heavy. I needed to know since it was a series where I was going to make sure I could uh, stretch plots and be pulling in new characters and have different things happening that would be interesting to readers. So when I would sit down to start a book, I would come in with a 20, 30, 40 page outline and every chapter would be outlined. I would also have an arc that would extend over the four books. So we would do a four book arc And then that arc would be complete before we would move on and explore a new arc. So I was a full-time writer right out of college. And to meet these deadlines, I was pulling 16-hour days, seven days a week, writing this series. And yeah, I even tore a tendon and a ligament in my elbow. And I couldn't have surgery because I I had to keep the schedule going. So I had to try to do the best that I could and wait until the series was finished to have surgery. 
So it's a very, very labor intense type of process. Um, and it was very collaborative with my editor, with my publishing house. I did a lot of watching TV and reading and drawing from movies that I loved and trying to put in as many different elements of things that I thought would interest young readers who might not have necessarily been horse fans. Mm -hmm. um, because I thought if I can get them in with the cute boys or going to a school dance, then maybe if they didn't like horses to start out, they'll stick around and realize it could be something they want to explore. And that's what started to happen. Um, I had readers come to me and say, I didn't really like horses or I didn't think about horses ever, but I read your books because of the cute boy. And then I begged my mom to take riding lessons. So I thought, I got you. I did my job. Oh, that's fabulous. So you ignited like a whole new generation of equestrians who may not have been mm -hmm. equestrians through your writing. How does that feel? That's got to feel awesome. It's so cool. And, you know, when I was going to the photo shoots, I was allowed to take very limited behind the scenes photos, but videos too, mm. that the publishing house would proof to make sure there was nothing given away that I couldn't post. And I would put those on my YouTube channel and on my Instagram. And my readers would see these and just go, just be so excited and buzzing with, oh my gosh, look at this, look at this. And one of the cutest stories to come from those is uh, the model who played Sasha's best friend, Callie, had never been around a horse before, not oh. once in her life. She was terrified. She showed up to the shoot crying. And she was a model from, I think, Wilhelmina. And they had to, they ended up getting this lovely shot of her. her she's gazing lovingly up at her black gelding. And what I told the readers after, when they all were just dying over the cover, guys, I hate to break it to you, but she's gazing lovingly at a broom handle because she was so terrified of holding his halter that we had to Photoshop the horse in after. And they just lost their minds and thought that that was hilarious. But come to find out after <laughs> the model then started to develop a liking for horses, she didn't start riding, but she started, you know, being okay with petting them. Mm -hmm. And she showed up at our later shoots being at least a little bit more comfortable around them. So that was really cool to be there and experience that. That is cool. And that's like a, a really neat behind the scenes kind of story that you're able to share mm -hmm. with with your readers who like right. like the behind the scenes stuff just as much as you know, when it, mm -hmm. when the new book is coming and what happens in the new book. So you are at 20 books in the series is is are you going to con what are your thoughts around continuing or, you know, where where are you with the Canterwood Press series now? Because we're, we're about to get into some of the other, you know, the other project that you have out there right now, but I, I'm just, you know, wanted to see sure. where, where you are now with the book in the series. Canterwood is wrapped as far as I know, as far as I've been told. Um, it was my publisher's decision, but also mine thinking that I don't want to ever, I guess, extend it just to do it. Mm -hmm. I want there to be stories that need to be told. Mm -hmm. So I self-published a Canterwood novella, mm -hmm. and I teamed up with a group of wonderful equestrian writers, including Natalie Reinert, and we put out this Christmas anthology called Deck the Stalls. Mm -hmm. So in that anthology is a brand new Canterwood Christmas story. So I'm hoping to do more things like that, little spinoffs. But at this time, yeah, we've closed Canterwood, but it was 
it was incredible. And we have 1.5 million books in print now for the series. That is an incredible accomplishment. I mean, you know, just what you shared with us, it's just very obvious that like how dedicated to your readers and to your writing you were in order to, to crank out a highly successful series on a tight timeline like that. That sure. is just really incredible. And you mentioned um, the screen rights were, were optioned. And, mm -hmm. you know, I'm thinking with like the success of Heartland and, you know, some of the other uh, things that are going on. What, where is that? Are, are, would you like to see it become a series on TV or perhaps a movie? Would you like that? Or what do you think in there? I would love it, especially after watching Free Rain on mm -hmm. Netflix. Mm -hmm. That series is fantastic. And I love Heartland too. Um, as of right now, the options have all expired. Mm. So I'm hoping that another company will pick them up. And it's always something that I'm open to. I think Canterwood could potentially make a really great series on Netflix or another streaming platform. For sure. Absolutely. We need more horse series <laughs> and more horse movies out there. And I hope that, you know, when, not if, when Canterwood Crest becomes a, se a series or a movie that you'll be able to be on set as the, uh, you know, equestrian professional to make sure everything looks right and sounds right and they do it right um, to make sure it's authentic to the equestrian lifestyle. What, would you love that or what? <laughs> oh, I would because, you know, for the Take the Reins cover, let's say, for example, I've showed it, but originally they didn't have a helmet on Sasha. They thought that it would take away too much of the fashion. They had even thought of having her in a dress. Mm. And I said, guys, that's not authentic to real equestrians. Let's put her in a really dressy, cute, sleeveless top. Um, and let's put a helmet on her. It can be a black crushed velvet, really gorgeous helmet. Mm -hmm. And I had a lot to do with the, like, making sure the elements of the equestrian world were correct. So I think having, whether it's me or somebody else, having an equestrian on set who knows how things should be is really important. Mm -hmm. And then, and what I love about this story, too, is it brought horses back into your life in such a cool, creative way way and that you completely embraced you know not only the muse telling you you had the story to write but you embraced everything that that showed up it's almost like it was meant to to be like the universe said step this way jessica come with me i've got i've got horses in your future and creative writing in your future just just trust me and it sounds like you completely did <laughs> i did i it yeah that must have been it because i was going through this whole thing you know working with canerwood and I got an email one day from Briar, the company that makes the model horses that we drool over. Horse girls, our shelves are filled with the Saddle Club, Thoroughbred, and Briar. Mm -hmm. That's what they're filled with. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, we've read this series. We would love to do three models and package them with your books. And I thought, no, I can't even handle this right now. <laughs> That is like every horse book author's dream. You're living the dream. So yeah, tell us more about yeah. that. Well, we ended up with, I have one with me. This is the model Blackjack packaged with the third book. And yeah, they put a little summary. And when they were designing them, they said, what do you think about coming, doing a tour of our facilities in New Jersey? You can take a couple of photos if we proof them and a couple of videos. 
I went, I got to see, I was with the designers. He created in front of me a Briar model and then signed it. Just watching how it's done was mind blowing. And having, it is, it is a dream come true to have Briar models to go with your books. I can't even believe it to this day. (laughs) That is such a dream. How incredible. That's such a dream come true. And then I imagine there's some legal aspect to to that because the books are your intellectual property. Like how how did you how did they approach you about coming to agreement about using your characters to create the briars? Like what what sure. was that like? Uh, they came to me initially. Uh, they just pulled my email off of my website, and I involved my agent right away mm-hmm. and said, "I don't know anything about this. What do we do here?" And mm-hmm. then they had to get in touch with Simon and Schuster. Um, because they own, I, I think, a part of the merchandising rights. Mm-hmm. So it was just making sure that everything was all correct and legal. But just a fascinating experience. And that led me to going to speak at Briarfest, oh. which if you haven't been, you should go. Briarfest is amazing. It's, oh, it's the best. It is. It's the coolest thing. I'm just like you. I grew up drooling over briar horses and I, you know, I had shelves and shelves of them and I still have them up here in my office actually. Yeah. As but uh, yeah, and Briarfest is incredible. Did you go to the Clarion Hotel while you were there? Yes, and- I did. <laughs> okay. T- talk to us about your experience of the Clarion Hotel because when I first experienced it, I was like, I can't even believe this is, this is real. <laughs> I couldn't either. The signs, first of all, that people had in their hotel windows mm-hmm. saying what they had, what they wanted, what they were looking for was intense. I've never seen anything like it. And people, it was like they were there to follow, I don't know, the Jonas Brothers or something. Mm-hmm. It was just such a huge fan group of people mm-hmm. and people lining up to meet their favorite horses, to see the horses that inspired these Briar models. It was such a fun, just almost overwhelming, though, atmosphere of energy. Yeah, it's like the Comic-Con of it is. model horses. And this yes. Clarion Hotel, they, it's, it's not where like people stay, stay there, but they flip all the rooms and it becomes like a swap meet, flea market, mm-hmm. like shopping extravaganza of briar horses, ones that are hard to find, ones that are limited editions, like every room has shelves and shelves and shelves and shelves and people pack the halls and they have all these signs, you know, talking about their love of Briar horses and people paint their cars, just a cool experience. And then when you talked to Briarfest, uh, what, what did, did you do a book signing in tandem with that? I did. I did a signing and I spoke about, you know, that cliche that I talked about earlier with a door closing and a window opening, thinking oh. that this would never be something I would do. It had always been something that I'd wanted to attend something like Briarfest, but never imagined that it would come to me this way. Mm-hmm. And I think that resonated with people. Yeah. And what a great example you are for, for everyone, you know, it's like to um, overcome something so challenging and then just, just have this incredible, beautiful life unfold before you and, and embrace it and step into it. And then you're inspiring people through your words. I mean, there's nothing better than that um and I just I'm so happy and thank you for sharing this incredible story with us it's just been thank you neat to hear it firsthand um you know I want to talk a little bit too about your your other works um your other works include the unicorn magic series and the standalone YA novel wild hearts would you tell us a little bit about 
about these? And I imagine these came sure. after uh, Canterwood Crust series kind of wrapped because that was a heavy timeline that you were dealing with. Well, there. that's what you would think. Oh. But as Canterwood was still happening, I was having more horse ideas. And I put together a pitch for a YA novel about a girl whose father is a land developer and he wants to go out west and buy up the land. And instead of letting Mustangs in this area of Wyoming roam free, do their thing, he wants to drive them out mm. and she wants to stop him. And it's, it turned into my first YA novel with Bloomsbury called Wild Hearts. And yeah, I mean, I was outlining it and sort of writing it while I was writing Canerwood and it came out in 2015. So that was, that was pretty exciting. And um, after Canerwood and after Wild Hearts, I thought I wanted to try my hand at something younger. Hmm. So I wrote a four installment chapter book series called Unicorn Magic really super cute yes very cute for those of you uh listening and not watching on youtube she's holding up the cover of the book and it's it looks like did you work with an illustrator on on those i did yes and she just came up with the cutest illustrations and it follows an eight-year-old princess who gets her first magical unicorn on her birthday oh i love <laughs> that that's awesome and in, in while while you were working on these other it's it's amazing how the creative mind works right because you may be working on one story but there's other stories that bubble up all the time and you know probably keep a journal or notes somewhere so you don't lose the idea oh, yeah. um but you mentioned uh earlier too that you had you had dabbled in some independent publishing as being a part of the deck the stalls anthology um and you have been with a traditional publisher what are you know are you looking at the hybrid publishing route or or what is what is your preference or what has been your I mean it sounds like you had an amazing experience working with a traditional publisher like how does sure. all that work out for you and it sounds like you went with a different publisher for your YA than you had worked with with Canterwood Press so you know I that did. seems like that can get a little complicated like what's what's your experience been managing all that I just want to make sure that I can provide for myself mm -hmm. and for my family Mm -hmm. So for me, it's what type of publishing do I need to do to pay my bills? And it's if I need to put out something independently and self-publish a short story here and there, I will absolutely do that. Mm -hmm. If it's switching to a different publishing house, if they want to publish my YA and stick with Simon & Schuster for other properties, that's great too. Mm -hmm. um, I really enjoy all aspects of publishing and I like learning too self-publishing really taught me a lot about being a good editor mm -hmm. and um I think that was important because I later edited a YA anthology for Simon & Schuster so it's really what can I learn about publishing and where can I learn it and just taking my experiences wherever I feel will fit my stories best that's really smart, you know, and, and, and I like this conversation because there, there is a lot of possibility and a lot of different mm -hmm. routes you can take and a lot of different ways you can, can approach being an author. And uh, a lot of authors are talking now about this hybrid model where they, some of their works will be with a traditional publisher and some of them they'll independently do. And then you're doing editing uh, in the middle, which is 
what I want to talk about next. So you yeah. actually made your editorial debut with Life Inside My Mind, um, where 31 authors share their personal struggles, which is an important topic. Um, can you tell us about this book and its important message? Um, I know you're passionate about speaking out about the importance of good mental health and taking care of your mental health. Can you tell us a little bit about this project? Sure. Well, um, this is my editorial debut from Simon Pulse and Life Inside My Mind came out in 2018. And it's a collection of 31 authors coming together to talk about anxiety, depression, OCD, suicide attempts, anorexia, in an attempt to make it easier for people to have these conversations and to know that they might look at an author who they might view as some sort of quasi celebrity or celebrity and realize that, hey, we go through these things too. We are just people, we are human. And it was important to me because I've dealt with crippling um, generalized anxiety and also depression. And I thought I want to make sure my readers feel comfortable talking to someone if they need to, if they're struggling. And we have such, we have such high suicide rates in this country now too, that I don't want my readers to ever feel like that's the only way out, that there is no other option than to end their life. And, and you speak out about this a lot on your, on your blog and mm -hmm. you talk about this and, and I think it is so important and, and thank you for being a stand for sure. people having a place to go and talk about these things. And, um, as a, as an editor, I, you know, that was, that was pretty cool. I mean, you have, you know, 15 years of experience as a freelance writer, an author, an editor, and you've edited, edited many novels uh, across various genres. Um, and a lot of them have been acquired by literary agents. So, mm -hmm. and this is a service you offer. Can you talk, talk to us a little bit about the services that you offer as an editor? Sure. Um, on my website, it's jessicaburkhart.com. You'll find that I help people come up with great query letters that will get an agent's attention. Um, I work with people to line edit their manuscripts and I do developmental edits too for them. So it's really about um, trying to help people who have a great story put all of those fine touches on their manuscript to make it the best it can be before they submit it to an agent or to an editor if they're going after a smaller press. Even for people who are self-publishing, mm -hmm. um, to make sure that everything is the best it can possibly be before they upload it to the internet. Mm -hmm. Good editing is so important. And what's, what's amazing about you offering this service is that you have been through it yourself. You've had yes. the experience, you know how it works. So, so it's like, makes makes a whole lot of sense that you would you would offer that and then and I love that you you offer that but you also uh are teaching two online writing classes um called via the writing barn which which actually just started um but tell us about the writing barn and the courses and how people can sign up to be educated by Jessica Burkhart <laughs> sure the writing barn is fantastic it's actually a brick and mortar building in um, Austin Texas mm -hmm where they hold in-person classes, but they've also spun off to offer online courses, which is where I come in. Mm -hmm. So I get on Zoom and I teach people how to market their books um, or how to write a middle grade or a YA. 
So um, if you go to thewritingbarn.com, you can find a listing of all of their classes and their instructors are all just wonderful and so, so smart. Um, and then I've kind of branched off into working with Writing Workshops Dallas and teaching online classes for them too. So it's just another way too for me to teach myself things and it's a good refresher to, I feel like you have to really understand a concept before you can teach it to someone. Mm-hmm. So it's education is always good. I don't think you ever know too much to get education. Yeah, never stop learning. That I mean, it mm-hmm. keeps you young too, right? It does. Yeah, I love that you you offer these services and this educational opportunity because you know I'm so for authors uniting and supporting each other and creating community and not competing with each other but lifting each other up. And you are a testament to that. So, you know, thank you for sharing everything you've learned and all your knowledge and putting it out there into the world. Um, not to, you know, around writing, around editing, which is so important to have good editing. And then, you know, also mental health awareness. I mean, you are, you are a contribution, you know, through your thank writing, you. through all the things you're doing. Thank you for that. Um, well, and to go back a little bit to, you know, when you, when you first had all this success and, and, you know, the agent approached you and you had one NaNoWriMo, is there something that you wish you had known, known back then as a new author that you could, you know, share with aspiring authors that might help them in their journeys? Is there something you wish you knew when all this started happening? Sure. And it would be not to compare myself to everyone else. Mm. That was probably the biggest thing when I moved to Brooklyn and was living near and watching all of these big literary stars doing their events and doing their things and just wanting to, well, not feeling good enough, I think, or feeling like an imposter. So having that imposter syndrome Mm -hmm. and feeling like, oh, I must have gotten lucky. I really shouldn't be here. I'm really not that great. Um, They're going to find out that I'm not a good writer and I'm just a fraud, basically. Um, so not comparing yourself. I think that's so important. And then how did you overcome that feeling? Cause I know a lot of authors or a lot of creatives, uh, actually deal with the imposter, you know, syndrome, mm-hmm. like, who am I to be doing this? I'm not good enough comparing yourself to others. Was there a breakthrough that you had that helped you like overcome that feeling or a learning lesson that you had that made you realize like thinking that way was to your own detriment? I wish I could say yes, but I still have imposter syndrome. After (laughs) all of the books, I still, every time I go to teach a class, think nobody's going to sign up for this. Why would they sign up with me when you could go learn from anybody else? Hmm. Um, I have not found an answer to that question yet. That's, you know, we are our own worst enemies, aren't aren't we? Yes, we are. But speaking to this imposter syndrome, uh, you know, you you are living the dream. You are a full-time writer. You offer these other services. You're an educator. Did you, and I imagine this, the answer to this is no, but did you ever expect to be able to write full-time and support yourself? Like, I will say yes, only because I'm not good at anything else. <laughs> I knew that I had to make this work. Mm. I loved it more than anything. And I just feel like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing too. Mm-hmm. Um, even if I still don't feel as though I'm great at it, I still feel like it's what I should be doing. Um, so no, honestly, I never thought that this would be where I am today. 
but you rolled up your sleeves and you did the work and you educated yeah. yourself and you surrounded yourself by good people. And you realized, you realized a dream, you know, you said, I'm good at this. I'm going to do this. And you, you made it happen. So that's a testament to doing the work and educating yourself and anything that's possible, right? You're sure proof of that. It is. And I think hard work honestly trumps talent a lot of the time. If you work harder than anybody else, I really believe that you can get to wherever you want to be. Oh, that's, that's amazing. And, and inspiring and true. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And then, you know, uh, how, how do you reach your readers? Has there been anything that's worked like really well for you or, or do you have any advice for, uh, authors on how to get, get to their readers or reach their readers better? Sure. I'm pretty active on social media, mm-hmm. but I think it's also because I enjoy it. If I didn't enjoy it, I believe my readers could tell and they really wouldn't want to interact with me as much. I try to hop on Instagram as much as I can and interact with them there. Um, just do little live pop-ins, be like, hey, how's it going? What's up? Um, same thing with Snapchat. I try if I can to snap readers back or you know, post something there at least once or twice a week. Um, so I think it's about doing those marketing platforms that you genuinely enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, and just doing school visits too. That's such a great way to meet readers who will then follow you anywhere because mm-hmm. it's often the first time that they've ever met an author in real life. Mm-hmm. So they're just so fascinated by the entire process that they'll hop on and then follow you on all social media after you go to a school visit. And I think that's a really, really important thing that you said is that you engage with your readers, you know, mm-hmm. like if they, if they snap at you or they, you know, you respond. Uh, I think that's a really important thing for people in our position who, who have readers that love our work to engage with them, you know, always, always respond yeah. to readers, always get back with them. And it sounds like you're doing that really well. And, you know, speaking of uh, your readers. Do you have any like interesting stories to share about having met your fans? I can only imagine that they're rabid and they, you know, completely, I mean, you know, I know how I was as a young horse loving girl devouring books or briars or what have you, like we're, they're rabid. So do you have any cool stories from meeting with readers? They do. And they are rabid. They will come at me screaming about how my character picked the wrong boy or (laughs) how dare she say that horrible thing to her ex-friend. And they're so invested. And I love it because I feel like I've done my job if I'm getting them invested. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say one of the greatest memories I've had is absolutely meeting readers at Briarfest. And also I went to an inn in New England and had a sleepover with a group of teenage girls, a book club who'd read my books. We did our hair, we did our nails, we did our makeup, and we stayed up all night eating junk food and just gossiping and chatting. And I love stuff like that. I think um, it's hard for me to see authors who don't want to engage with their readers because they're the reason that we're allowed to do our jobs. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. And I just, I love that. And then just what, what would you say is like the demographic? I imagine every, everyone who loves horses would, your books would appeal to, to them, but like who, who was your target when you were writing the Canterwood Crest books? Like what, what was your like target age? For Canterwood, it's ages eight to 12, eight to 13. Okay. 
I just wanted to to clarify that too, because, you know, I'll read anything with a horse in it, but I was Same. just wondering like who, yeah, who, who you were focused on when you were, when you were thinking about writing the books. Uh, and then I, I always ask my interviewees these, this, this question, because I, everybody's response is different and it's always really interesting to hear different perspectives, but what for you has been the hardest part about your author career or being an author? I would say the uncertainty. It's still at the end of the day, you're still self-employed and you still need to pay your bills and make sure that all those things are covered. And at the end of the day, your success depends on you, but also not so much. It's with things beyond your control, like how many copies your book sells or doesn't sell. Mm -hmm. So I think not having that steady paycheck can be scary. Um, but it's also really the only way that I've ever lived. So I don't know anything else. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you've been really smart though, too, because you're opening up different revenue streams. It's not just all focused on, you know, the Canterwood Crest series. You have the services that you offer as an editor. You take freelancing jobs. You've written other books. Um, Mm -hmm. You're doing the educational um, web webinar series or the mm-hmm. educational stuff through the writing bank. So you have different ways that it's coming into you. And I imagine, you know, when you do speaking engagements, there's a little bit of income for you around that as well. Yes, absolutely. And then merchandising, did you merchandise anything else from Canterwood Crest or was it just mainly the, the Briar, the Briar lines? It was just the Briar lines. So there's a whole world of possibility there too. You still you still have uh, screen or book to book to screen rights that right. you can work with, yes. uh, and then merchandising that might come out of that. So you never know where intellectual mm-hmm. property is going to lead you uh, as far as income comes. But yes, it is very uncertain, and you have to be wise about the decisions you're making mm-hmm. uh, in in that realm when you when you become a self employed person. You know, you're running a business, right? Absolutely. And then on the flip side of that question, I, I know you talk about how much you love your readers, and that's always the best thing about being an author. But like, what, what else for you has been the best part of your author career? I would say having the freedom every day to be in my pajamas if I want or not to leave my house, um, to have those opportunities to pick up and go, to travel if I need to. Mm-hmm. to get to experience things all around the country with people I never would have met otherwise, mm-hmm. I think is a really huge thing for me and for my career. Yeah. So you don't get stuck in the the rut or the monotony of a, mm-hmm. you know, a routine. There's like always something spicy going on with your author, right. author line yes. and, and the, the opportunity to stay at home. I mean, that is true of authors. We <laughs> Stay at home in our pajamas without makeup on, working all day diligently to bring fresh content to people. Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) You don't need makeup and like a smart wardrobe to be an author. (laughs) No, it was just for this hour today that you got. Yes. (laughs) And you're not the first person to say that. So that's like totally okay. You know, and I loved it. I, will, I love asking this question too. Like you have, you know, you have a lot of fans. You have, you have very rabid fans. What might one of those fans be surprised to learn about you? Can you do like a rotating backflip into a jump kick or do you own a pet monkey? <laughs> a pet monkey would be awesome. <laughs> I would be so cool. I'm put that on my list. Um, I would say just that I'm as big of a dork and nerd 
as a lot of my readers are, and I love and embrace that. I am the biggest Pokemon Go player that you've probably ever met. I love going for walks and playing games and um, yeah, just immersing myself in that kind of culture. Also, I think my anxiety is something that a lot of readers would not expect because I am speaking, I am teaching, I am doing all these different things that require me to sort of slip into business author just mode. Mm-hmm. And once that's over, it's such a huge sigh of relief. And I did it. I didn't fall on my face. This didn't happen. This didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's important to keep being vocal about things like that, you know? Absolutely. And, you know, you're embracing those things about it. We're all dorks. We're all nerds. Like we, <laughs> we should all embrace our inner dorkiness and, you know, embrace that. And then we, you know, we also all struggle with things like that. It's very real. And mm-hmm. I'm an introvert and I, I feel where you're, where you're coming from when I do something not not that not necessarily this, but like it it requires a lot of energy to be out there and be forward facing and be the business side of us when we're introverted authors. That it it takes me a while to recharge after an event or something like that. And then and that's what it's like, kind of taking care of your mental well being is to allow yourself the space to recharge, but then also put yourself out there, talk about it. But that's part of the that's the part of managing it is to put yourself in situations that you would rather avoid, you know, mm-hmm. but, but being out there and, and being in front of people kind of helps manage, manage that too. Would you, would you say that's correct? Absolutely. Because when I went to teach my very first writing workshop online, I almost canceled. I mm-hmm. thought I just cannot do this. My anxiety was just so high. And then I did it. And immediately I had a class two weeks later and it was a little bit less next class a little bit less so I think it's about doing those things that do make you uncomfortable but also in my case the more I do them the less the anxiety tends to bubble up right Mm -hmm. before so it's a delicate balance though it really is and and thank you for being so open and honest about about that I think that it's very important that we do that to let everyone know that we're not polished we're not perfect we're, we're managing things too. And everyone is, I mean, that's, yeah. that's the real truth of the matter is everybody's dealing with something. Mm-hmm. So I'm really excited to learn about what you're curious about now. Like what's next for you? Do you have any like burning projects that spinning their wheels in your mind that readers might be excited to hear about? Well, the one that's getting the most excitement for me right now would be a new horse series. Ooh, yeah, I think it's time. And I have a draft just about complete for the first novel. And I think I'm ready to go back to a middle grade slash tween horse series. So fingers crossed that publishers think that's the right move. Hopefully they do. Um, And then also after that, I think moving and doing another YA Mm. is something that I want to do. But first, the horse book. Let's cross our fingers and hope that that um, that I have an announcement to make hopefully in the next you know few months. Oh, that's super super exciting! I can't wait yeah. for that. That's that's so <laughs> great, and I'm sure your your readers and your fans cannot wait. And what what's even exciting about this too is you're going to write these books and grab a whole new audience mm-hmm. of young people growing up and inspire them to love horses. But then the people that loved your books 
before we're are going to snag those books up and read them right away. So like this fills a, a void for your readers, but then also brings along new people into the world of horses and loving books about them. So super cool. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> okay. Well, you have to let me know when you're ready to talk more about this series and we'll have you back on the show to, to tell people where you're heading and what's going on awesome. and what's next. Yay. I'd love to. Oh yes, for sure. And thank you for being so so cool and such a great support and you. you know you you were so friendly and I'm I was excited to have you on the show today and and I admire you I you know I looked I look up to you and a, a lot of the other authors that were doing this before me and you're my inspiration so having you on the show is Thank a real, real gift for me uh Jessica will you share with us where people can find out more information about you and your books Sure. You can find everything you want to know about me on my website. It's jessicaburkhart.com. And the easiest way to interact with me online is probably at Twitter. And my handle is Jessica Burkhart. Fantastic. And your books are available anywhere. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, anywhere you can find them. (laughs) Awesome. And I will link to all those places in the show notes, along with pictures that Jessica has provided, um, you know, so people can get straight to you and, and find out more about you. And again, I, loved having you in the show. Thank you for sharing so much awesome information and congratulations on your enormous success. Thank you so much, Carly. This was a blast and I cannot wait to come back. I had so much fun. Oh, me too. And you will be back for sure. So do let me know while I'm always out there watching what you're doing. So (laughs) I will reach out to you when I know you've got a little more to talk about, about that new series and the new YA book. So we'll do it. Good. I can't wait. Thanks. Have a great day. you. You too. Bye everyone. Thanks for joining us this week on the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I hope you enjoy these Q&A sessions with wonderful equine authors who love all things horses and writing, just like me. Visit my website, carlycadecreative.com, where you can read the show notes, and make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you so much for your support. Want a free guide to secrets of horse book authors? Gallop over to carlycadecreative.com forward slash wisdom to have author advice delivered instantly to your inbox. If you are an author who writes about horses and would like to be spotlighted, please let me know. Visit my contact page at carlycadecreative.com to fill out a request. I'd be happy to have you on the show too. Thank you for tuning in to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. See you next time. I'm your host, Carly Cade. Creative writing makes my spurs jingle.